Okay, Mark 4, 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to invite a guest preacher up this morning. We have our very own Tim Goddard, who will be sharing the sermon with us this morning as Pastor Dave is out of town. He is, um, I'm looking forward to him sharing with us. He's on the journey to Mosaic this weekend, which is something that the Covenant denomination does uh, for racial reconciliation. And I'm sure he'll have a lot of exciting stories to share with us when he comes back. But for this morning, um, I'm looking forward to having Tim share with us what the Lord has put on his heart this morning. So am I. <laughs> um, well, let's go ahead and get started. First off, um, as mentioned, Tim Goddard. Uh, I've been going here for about a year and a half and really honored and, and humbled by the opportunity to, to bring the word today. Really appreciate the trust from Dave and, and Allison and, and others um, to do that. I want to start, though, um, since I am sort of new to here, uh, at least in this mode, um, I want to start by kind of maybe, to use Dave's word, deconstructing a little bit what we do every week here, because it is it's, it's a moment when things are different, right? It's a little bit of a moment to think about why we even do things the way we do, right? And if you, like me, have spent a lot of time in church, it, you probably take a lot of it for granted, but if you haven't, then you'll probably agree that some of it is a little bit weird. We're taking a book that was written thousands of years ago, and not really even a book, it's a collection of documents of all kinds, and then we're we sit here and we listen to somebody up here talking about how we can learn from that and apply it to our lives. <clears throat> this is not something that happens in other parts of life. It's a little bit different. And we have good reasons that we do that, right? We do this because we believe that this ancient collection of documents is the inspired word of God and that the Holy Spirit uses it to teach us um, about two things specifically. One is who Jesus is. And that's the question that we just heard the disciples ask, who is this? Um, and then the other thing we ask or can learn is what, what do we do about that? Once we have understood who God is, what do we do about that? Um, so when we do look at a passage in, in scripture, um, one of the things I really like to do is to keep in mind a couple of the things I just said. That number one, it is a collection of documents that we're reading from. This story doesn't exist in a vacuum by itself, but it is sort of interrelates to the other pieces of scripture. Um, and it was written a very long time ago. It is an ancient collection of documents. So it has its own context in time, in space, and the better that, and culture is another key one there. And the better we understand that context, the better we can learn from that. So that's what I wanna kick things off in terms of kind of digging in on, uh, on both of those. Before we get to those questions of who, who is Jesus, what do we do about it? So first, 
looking at the whole Bible kind of as a whole and thinking about it that way, there's something really interesting in terms of how Mark, how the story in Mark fits. And that is, this is the second time in scripture where we've got a story that sounds a lot like this. If you think about it, you can probably, even if you're not super familiar with the Bible, you can probably think of another time when you've got somebody sleeping on a boat, there's a storm, everybody's freaking out, they're all going to die. Uh, you may remember the story of Jonah. This is exactly the story of Jonah. In both stories, they're out on a boat in a storm. In both stories, they're sleeping. In both stories, the sailors come to them and say that they're about to die. Mark even uses the same Greek word for perishing uh, in, in his writing that is used in the, the Greek translation of Jonah. Um, <clears throat> In both stories, they wake up, they do something about it, and the storm miraculously stops. Like, the, the parallels are really, really clear, and when you've got parallels that clear, you know there's some reason for it, um, and we're going to come back to that. So that's kind of the big picture. Like That's the clear, like, oh, this looks a lot like this other thing in the Old Testament. But within the book of Mark, you've also got some really important context in terms of why and how he's telling this story in the way that he is. Um, to start, we're in the middle of kind of a transition phase. If you remember last week, we had Dave talking about the parables that Jesus was uh, telling. He was on a boat sort of out from the shore and he was preaching and he was telling a whole set of parables. And we went through one of those last week. And if you remember, one of the things Dave talked about was how one of the purposes of speaking in parables isn't just to teach, but it's actually in some ways to conceal. Um, he specifically described, talks about sort of these things being secret, being hidden, being concealed, even though he's sharing them. And so this story, uh, the, we just heard of the storm, is the first of a set of four miracles that Jesus does that are specifically about him revealing himself and revealing um, his power, really. And so this is, the first one is power over nature. I think next week we're going to get power over the supernatural, and then we may come back to it after Advent, um, power over illness and power over death. So again, putting this into context in a particular way for particular reasons. Um, the disciples themselves kind of have their own context here as well, because they were just on land, or not on land, but were at the shore with Jesus, and Jesus said something to them that we talked about last week. That he says, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is in parables. So the disciples, the beginning of the story, were feeling pretty good about themselves. Like, we are in, we have the secret, everybody else is on the outside, and we're on the inside. And these are the exact same disciples that at the end of the storm, Jesus says, what, where is your faith? What is going on, guys? Do, do you not have any faith? And I think, you know, if, if nothing else, that's a really nice reminder for those of us who do think of ourselves as the disciples, who do think of ourselves as in, on the inside, um, who want to draw distinctions between ourselves and others uh, and the crowd. Ultimately, um, one of the commentaries I read said, you know, the difference here is degree, not kind, really. If you're, you know, the Jesus disciples are closer in. He is telling them things the others aren't, but that doesn't make them necessarily special in and of themselves. He gave us and them the secret of the kingdom, not the other way around. It's God's doing, not ours. And that, that's something else I'll come back to because I think that's also important. And then last sort of piece of context, when Jesus rebukes the storm, and 
as an aside, I hate that word rebuke. Um, it's one of those church words we only use if we're talking about the Bible or maybe in a news article about a stunning rebuke to the prime minister's tax scheme. Like this is, you would never, if you're talking uh, to somebody, you would never say, oh yeah, I totally rebuked that guy. Uh, unless you were like purposefully being ostentatiously churchy. Uh, you would not say that. I think, I spent some time trying to figure out what is the word we would use. I think we would say today, told off, right? Like that's the term we would use. Um, so if you still want to substitute that, Jesus told off the storm. He later then tells off the disciples. But at any rate, when he does this, when he tells off the storm, the word there for rebuke or told off or whatever, um, as well as the words be quiet, are the exact same words he used way back at the beginning in the first chapter of Mark when he does the first miracle, when he um, exercises a demon, he casts out a demon. Exactly the same words. He, the rebuke word is the same, and the be quiet word is exactly the same. And so Mark is using that language from the first miracle of one sort to really introduce this kind of the first miracle of this sort, which is the first miracle in Mark over creation. He's kind of introducing this new aspect of who Jesus is to, to his listeners, to his readers. Um, everything else before has been healing, casting out demons, all very person related, kind of similar to maybe what you'd have prophets doing in one form or another for, for a long time. And this is the first, though, to really, like this is, this is Jesus exercising power over creation in a new way within, within the gospel. And so this is helping Mark answer that question that Jesus, or the disciples asked, that we asked, who is this? All right, so that's the biblical context. Now, the historical context, which is my favorite part, because I was a history major and so forth. Uh, also geographic, uh, geographic context. The Sea of Galilee itself. This is called a sea, really more of a lake. I think we've got um, some pictures here. It's about twice the size of Lake Washington. So it's not a small lake, but it is kind of like he's been in Seattle and now he wants to go across to Kirkland. So it's not, you know, it's not a short trip. Uh, but it's not a huge one either. The big difference, though, between the Sea of Galilee and Lake Washington, aside from being larger, is that it's the storms are much worse. Um, it's in a basin. It's actually 700 feet below sea level. You've got this cleft where the Jordan River is down south, where you can get wind going in or out. And you've got Mount Hermon, which is the um, largest peak, highest peak in the area. It's about 9,000 feet tall. It's only 60 miles away. So you've got this major temperature differential. So between all of those things, they can combine to really get some amazing storms. And if you want to go to the, the video here, I've always kind of wondered, it's like, it's a lake. How bad can the storms really get? Yeah, this is pretty bad. Like you can, like this, it turns out, yeah, it's a big lake. But the storms themselves are, are kind of incredible. Um, and that's one piece. This is the lake itself. The fishing boats themselves. Uh, this is one that they found actually in Galilee from around the time of Jesus, which is kind of neat. Um, but the, the role of boats in the story itself actually got me thinking about something that I originally started wondering about back when Dave introduced the, the whole uh, calling of the disciples. Sorry, and my question was, and it relates to this story, um, why did he call so many fishermen? 
or a lot of fishermen. There's a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a diverse group, but there's a bunch of these guys are fishermen. And that's kind of strange when you think, again, about the Bible as a whole, because if you go back to the Old Testament, traditionally, the Israelites were, were herdsmen. They, shepherds and goats, sheep, goats, all sorts of things like that. Um, you also have priests, maybe that, that would seem logical, right? Why fishermen in particular? And in fact, not only were there, you know, oh, is that a little unusual? There almost were no fishermen in the Old Testament. I, so I spent some time going back on this and looking at this. You get fish mentioned as food outside of the dietary laws where it's, like, it's okay to eat, but it's only mentioned like twice that I could find once in numbers when the Israelites are complaining like, oh, we had fish in Egypt, it was amazing. So that's down south. And another time later on in Nehemiah, when people from Tyre come up and they sell fish in the marketplace um, in Israel. So that's up north, Tyre's up north. So you got people fishing in the north and people fishing in the south, uh, but you don't have a lot of fishing in Israel. I could only find one reference to fishermen in, um, in Israel itself, and that's actually in a vision that Ezekiel has of the future temple, which is itself you know, more of a metaphor. And it talks about the river flows out of the temple and you've got fishermen along the sides with their nets. But they're not in boats, which is important. Um, I'll get back to that. No, there's a reason for it. One of the big reasons for this is that the Hebrews themselves, while they live by the coast, you'd think they would be a little more coast-oriented, ocean-oriented. They really weren't. If you go back to Genesis, uh, Abraham is from Ur. That's from Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is a pretty long way away from the sea. They have a very different perspective on the sea than like the Greeks did or the Phoenicians or some of the others. The, the ocean was not their friend. It was seen as a place of chaos um, and of darkness, of, of danger. And in the Old Testament, many times when the sea is mentioned, it's, it's this picture of God taming the sea. Um, in fact, you, you actually get a, a, there's a name that'll pop up a few times, and it's a little bit strange, but there's a name that pops up, Rahab, which is a sea monster, that there's sort of this, this imagery of God taming Rahab, the sea monster, which itself was kind of a myth that is used in scripture to describe something God is doing, and it probably goes back to sort of Mesopotamian myths when you had the sky god battling the sea goddess, things like that. It was this imagery, this cultural understanding, this cultural view of the sea as, um, as itself dangerous and dark and chaotic, but also as a symbol of danger, dark, chaos. Um, you get, you know, you do get some boats in the Old Testament, you get Jonah, doesn't go well there. You get the you get the flood again. Same stories. Those are kind of the exceptions that prove the rule. Sea is ominous, chaotic, destructive. So it's kind of natural that you don't have a lot of fishing happening because that's just not the orientation. That's not the perspective. You also, frankly, be, partly because of that, you didn't have the technology. The fishing boats that the disciples used, the one that we just saw the picture of, those were relatively new technology that had been borrowed from the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, and other Mediterranean cultures. Um, getting comfortable with the sea and with fishing and things like that was part of this process that went through kind of between the testaments of Hellenization, becoming more Greek that the Jewish people went through. And this actually ends up to be incredibly important because how does the gospel spread after Jesus? And it is through ships and shipping and traveling over the sea that spreads the news of Jesus all over the world. This is, it's one of these sort of historical events that ultimately is God preparing the way for Jesus and for his message to come out. So this, the fact that they were in fishing boats, this 
to me is maybe one of the reasons he called fishermen um, is, is for that. But also, when you start thinking about this as new technology, I think you also get a different perspective on, on the fishermen themselves and on the disciples. Because I think typically we think of fishermen kind of as analogous to farmers. But in reality, farming, herding, had been happening for thousands of years, whereas this fishing had been, was relatively new. So these guys are actually using new technology. They're entrepreneurs. They're skilled entrepreneurs using new technology. And they're going out and doing things and going places that their ancestors wouldn't have dreamed at. They are, um, you know, they are out on the edge. They are perhaps, one might say, in the danger zone. Uh, just, it's a different way to think about the disciples, maybe, uh, than, than kind of your, your hardy men of the soil, which they were to some degree, but they were out there doing something um, that took a lot of intelligence and capability that hadn't been done very much in the past. Their ancestors would have looked at that and said, what are you doing? Why are you, if God meant us to fly, we'd had wings. If God meant us to be out in the sea, we'd have had fins, right? It's a similar thing. Okay, there's some context for you. So let's dig in on what we can learn from all this in terms of who God is. I think the number one thing, the, the most straightforward and maybe sort of really important starting place is that Jesus is God. Like this is a, a story that Mark is using to help describe this crazy notion of the incarnation to his readers and his listeners. Uh, he's helping his people answer this question the disciples asked, who is this? Somehow this guy who was sleeping in the boat is the creator and he exercises authority over creation. Um, and the fact that it's a storm is important because explicitly power over the storms and seas was the province of God in the Old Testament. You get the flood, you get the parting of the Red Sea, you get the story of Jonah, you get the, the kind of the mythology and, and imagery of Rahab. All that is very clearly, this is God's role. And again, this being the first miracle that Jesus does over creation, Mark is really painting a picture here for the readers who are going to, going to understand there's something very different about this than the prophets that we've had in the past. So you've got this incredibly epic story. But here's the next thing that this, I think we can learn about Jesus from this, is that Jesus is real. Incredibly almost mythic story, and yet we've got these weird little asides that you heard Allison read. Uh, he mentions the, the term that Jesus went to the boat just as he was. What that means is he had been in one boat preaching, and then he went just as he was to another boat rather than going back to the shore. Well, okay, that doesn't actually come into the story. Why are you telling me that? Um, there are other boats with him, which none of the other Gospels mention. Uh, doesn't come into the story. We don't hear anything about those other boats. It's just kind of this offhand note. And Jesus, it's really important that you know that Jesus was sleeping on a cushion. This is key. <laughs> uh, so you've got these weird little asides that don't make a lot of sense if you're telling a myth, right? The Greek myths, actually, to the story, you know, what are you, what are you listening to right now? I'm actually going through an audiobook of Greek myths. Greek myths don't put in a lot of filler. They don't put in fluff. Modern day fiction, you set the scene and you put in these, you know, these little details that don't matter. Ancient writers didn't set the scene. They just told the story. And so the only reason to have these weird little asides in here is if this is a first-hand account. And it probably was Peter telling his first-hand account to the first Christians, including Mark, who then writes it down. And so you get these little notes. And so that's, I mean, on the one hand, that's very cool that it's that. But also, 
you know, that, I love that it's evidence that this is a true story, but I also love that it's almost a picture of the incarnation itself. It's this mythic, epic moment of this man standing up and saying to the storm, stop. But then you've got these mundane little details about the cushion and the other boats and, and things. And they're, they're right there, juxtaposed in this sort of paradox that is so beautiful and is the nature of this God-man, this you know, individual who is a human being. He's flesh and blood and sweat and spit, and yet he's also the creator of the universe, the creator of the storms. Um, and that, that's one of the things, frankly, I love about Christmas, is you get a lot of that in the Christmas story as well, in that story of the incarnation. So step three, number three, Jesus is powerful. This is actually, I think, the main point that Mark is making here is just people uh, in the early church understanding just Jesus' true power. And it goes back to his identity, but just the power itself is really key here. Um, and one of the ways you see that is when Jesus rebukes the storm, he doesn't call on any other power. He is himself sufficient. You know, if you're Mark's audience and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you're going to expect him to say, you know, in the name of the Lord of hosts or something like that. If you've seen the Ten Commandments, maybe you expect him to say, behold, his mighty hand. But he doesn't have any higher authority. He is the higher authority. He is authority itself. And he just gets up and doesn't, doesn't even sound like he raises his voice. It doesn't say he shouted at the storm. It just says he just, you know, commanded the storm the way I try and fail to command my dog. Um, you know. So he's, he is power incarnate. And then think about how he's exercising that power, both how the disciples and how the people first hearing this story would have heard it. Going back to what we said about storms and chaos and darkness, about what we said about these technologically skilled self-employed, capable people. They're comfortably surrounded by the latest in technology. Jesus is even asleep. Nobody seems to think anything of it until the storm starts. And then, despite all this tech savvy, despite all this self-reliance and capability, something happens that smashes through all of this. The storm hits, and all their human efforts and ability can't control it. Mark's audience is still going to remember that ancestral notion of the storm and this concept of the sea and storms being something more than just the sea and storms. There are really cosmic implications here. The storm isn't just a storm. It represents this primal, uncontrolled, elemental chaos. It represents that pit you feel in the stomach, in your stomach when you realize, when your body realizes you're about to fall and you can't do anything about it. It represents the vertigo you get when you look up at something huge and suddenly you feel small, you feel vulnerable, entirely incapable of keeping yourself or the people you love safe. So, you've got these tech-savvy professionals suddenly faced with this terrifying natural phenomenon that they can't control no matter how desperately they try. I don't know about you, but that hits a little close to home. Uh, <laughs> And then Jesus he wakes up, he stretches, maybe he blinks, and he walks out to this primal force of, force of chaos, this maelstrom that's about to kill everyone around him, and he says, hey, be quiet. And it stops. I mean, that's power, right? That, that is power. But, and this is kind of the last point here, ultimately, the way Mark tells the story Jesus' power is the key theme, 
but it calls sort of forward and back, back and forward to something even more amazing in Jesus' true power, which ultimately, and we know this from having read the full book, right? Ultimately, that power is in his sacrifice. Going back to the story of Jonah, the story is almost identical right up until your main characters wake up and what they do after that. In the, this story, Jesus says to the storm, stop, and it stops. In Jonah, he sacrifices himself to save those around him. So Mark is very clearly calling back to that story. And he's calling back to that story, I think, because he's actually calling forward to the cross and what Jesus does on the cross. You get that even more explicitly in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Jesus explicitly says to the Pharisees who want some kind of sign, and he says, all you get is the sign of Jonah, which is like, what does that even mean? It says, son of man will go, just like Jonah was in the whale for three days, the fish for three days, uh, son of man goes down to death for three days. Like it is, that, that is a explicit comparison that Jesus makes there, and that Mark is painting that picture through the way he tells this story here. The physical storm, excuse me, Jonah sacrificed himself to save others from the consequences of his own sin. Jesus sacrifices himself to rescue us from the consequences of ours. And the physical storm he quiets in this story is nothing compared to how he quieted the storms of sin and of death on that. And what makes it more amazing is to have it all kind of wrapping all this story together, right, is you've got the same Jesus, this real person we've just talked about being this, this real man that was sleeping, was waking up, all the normal things that people do, infinitely powerful, infinitely capable, and yet all of that, he gives up that power because he loved you. I find that absolutely incredible. So what do we do about that? Um, I've got sort of good news, bad news, good news situation here. The good news is that the instructions, at least from this story, are pretty simple. What does Jesus want from the disciples at the end of this story? just wants us to have faith. That's all he's asking them for. They were bailing out the boat. It was filling to, with water, and they were bailing like crazy to try to save themselves. But Jesus doesn't ask them, why didn't you bail faster? He asked them about their faith. And so if we understand the full fullness of this story, right, that means we have, can have faith that Jesus will take us safely through those storms of sin and death, through the storms we run into on our just everyday, day-to-day -day life. That all the bailing and frantic running around the ship ultimately doesn't mean anything. It is the faith that matters. Now the bad news is, like the disciples, often we are much better at bailing and running around the ship like idiots than we are at having faith. Um, the disciples in this story failed, right? They were bad Christians. They didn't have enough faith. Jesus specifically called them out on it. And that's me too. I am often a bad Christian. <laughs> I often do not have faith in Jesus to take me through the storms of sin and death, the storms of day-to-day -day life. And Jesus looks at me a lot, I'm very sure, and says, don't you have any faith? So that's the bad news. The good news on top of that bad news, though, Jesus saved the disciples anyway, right? The disciples failed. The disciples did not have faith. The disciples did not accomplish what ultimately Jesus wants for them and wants for us. 
but he still saved them. He still loved them. And it, it wasn't their faith that saved, that would have saved them, right? It was regardless, it was Jesus' grace, Jesus' love for them that saved them. And ultimately, it's Jesus' love and grace that save us. And that, I think, is the biggest comfort that I take from this story. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for your love and grace that is bigger than us, that is bigger even than our failures and our inability to, to be the people that we want to be and that you want us to be. And help us to never give up on seeking to have that kind of faith. But let us rest in the knowledge that you love us and that even when we fail, you will bring us through the storms. In your name, amen.